Happy Halloween, Al. Hey, happy Halloween, everybody. Man, did it blow last night. I don't know what yeah. time that was, but uh, it had that sound of a train or something. I was uh, um, slaving away at my desk and thought, what? how come I'm hearing a train now? And it was just, it was like a wind gust, I guess, uh, did- a fairly lengthy gust. Uh, just had a friend, a ha- again, Halloween, a friend just left, and he was uh, telling tales, showed me a picture of a grizzly that he'd taken out west, a photo, and he fell off a roof. And Ooh. so we were hearing about his uh, falling off a roof and being laid up for five months. So that was a very scary, scary Halloween story. And I guess uh, I guess if uh, there was any the thing he was trying to impress is if you're using a ladder, make sure you secure it in some some way or another. That's uh, what he learned, and they ended up down on the sidewalk. And he said he checked his phone because his phone was a thousand dollar phone, and Oof. he didn't want to wreck that. But it, the phone was okay because it was probably wearing an otter box, and he wasn't. So <laughs> he probably should. If I guess that maybe that's it. If you're going to go up on a tall ladder. Put on an otter box of some kind. I don't know if Best Buy or Verizon has those, but maybe Cricket does. I don't know where you get those things. Hey, uh, I want to say thank you to the Zumbro Valley Audubon Society for letting me uh, talk to that fine group, and also to the SCSC Science and Nature Conference that was held at Gustavus. It was fun being a part of that. And thanks to Miss Lona for that uh, a hint to uh, come up with a bat costume from a trash bag. So I, it was a, a last-minute thing. If you can't think of anything, I guess, boy, that'd be a perfect thing to go as. It's a bat. It's just uh, well, People love bats. It sounds pretty easy. You just cut the, the garbage bag a certain way and make some scallops, and you put it on over your head. Well, with a hole so your head sticks out obviously but <laughs> yeah. but yeah she said thought that'd be a good one for al and then our friend john in new Ulm thought uh he said he was thinking of something that al should have he says um he thought maybe you should be a scarecrow and he calls me scowin fright and he calls Dwayne ichabob Dwayne. so and Ichabob. then he calls us kms you K instead of KMSU, it's KMS Boo. So he's all he's kind of into this. Um, <laughs> oh, that's good. But he thought you should be a scarecrow, and you know it's funny because you were a scarecrow up at the state fair a number of years back. Somebody made a a scarecrow, and and it it looked just like you, a big pumpkin head. Yeah, and I think we got a ribbon. Well, yeah, cool. So that was that was pretty neat. It's yeah, it's uh I remember as a kid, you know, the only trick or treating really really did was in uh, at the school. And you know, we all pretty much went as ghosts. Some old sheet, they'd flop it over on you, they'd cut a couple holes for eyes and then tie something around the neck and away you'd go. And uh, we even bobbed for apples, which was impossible to do while being a ghost. Cause <laughs> you just get your sheet all wet. But it was, uh, I only went trick-or-treating, I only remember going once. And uh, it was with a relative in a uh, town in Iowa. And we got, the last place we went to, the gentleman that answered the door was a bit inebriated, I oh, believe, no. <laughs> looking back on it. 
and he gave my cousin a pack, not a full pack, but a, a partial pack of Marlboro cigarettes because he didn't have anything else to give him. So my cousin, of course, thought that was that was pretty cool getting that, and uh, that was taken away from him as soon as we got home. Well, we used to live five miles out of town. We had a small town. It was about 2,000 people. So five miles out was, you know, very much the country. And so we hardly got anybody that ever came. But there would be sometimes people would come and then be like, well, what do we have? So we would give them or my mom and dad would give them like a slice of cake or something because (laughs) that's we always, my dad and mom always made cakes. So we had cakes. You'd get us so imagine how messy a, a slice of cake is, yeah, or or an apple, or whatever fruit, an orange or something we had. But uh, we we never really had candy, but you could get cake from us. So I guess um, probably not every kid's favorite thing, but that's what we we had. When uh, Gail and I were first married, we lived in New Richland, and we would buy all the candy we could afford, and. Oh, there was just a steady stream coming to our porch, and bing bong, bing bong. It was just a never-ending. And when you're first giving it out, you're maybe too generous. You just (laughs) pile it on the kids, thinking, well, I don't want any of this stuff left over, because then we'll just eat it. And it went on till we finally ran out, and then you'd end up turning all off the lights and uh-huh. hiding behind the sofa in the dark. <laughs> and you'd still hear bing bong, bing bong, because everybody was saying, man, uh, those people live in that house, they just give you a huge pile of candy. So, you know, there's a kid, uh, there's a Halloween hotline of some kind for kids, and it gets around who's given the best stuff and the most stuff. Because it was always, it wasn't always the best stuff. It seems like it's just where you got the most candy. That's what you wanted to be. I got something from the Hormel Nature Center today, and they are in Austin, and they are looking for their uh, for an annual intern. So if you know anybody that uh, might fit that bill or be interested in it, and uh, get a hold of the. Hormel Nature Center. Boy, if I was if I was in the market, if I was a student, I'd do that. That sounds like a fun job. Oh, they get to do uh, things with kids. You get to work with raptors. You get to work with honeybees. It's just a. It just sounds like nothing that involves work there. And I know (laughs) they got all kinds of work that they have to do too. But it seems like it's just so much fun to it. I just, oh, here's a chickadee at my feeder right by me here. I, I didn't know it, but the first time I laid eyes on a chickadee, it was a beautiful, it was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. I just, uh, I, I just love seeing them. Uh, what I miss, I miss a lot of things right now. I miss, you know, all toads are frogs, but not all frogs are toads. And I miss both frogs and toads during our cold weather. Uh, frogs leap, toads hop, frogs have longer legs that allow them to take those big long jumps, and toads make shorter hops, and I sure miss seeing them. It's funny what you miss right off, and that's one of the things. Uh, The World Series birds that are migrating through Hawk Ridge and Duluth includes common red poles, snow buntings, red crossbills, purple finches, pine siskins, and northern shrikes. These are birds indicative of a change of seasons. Uh, Matt Morris of Albert Lee saw a white-faced ibis near Wyndham. Roger Davidson sent me a New York Times article that said uh, flying squirrels and platypuses were found to be fluorescent, absorbing invisible ultraviolet light and re-emitting it in shocking pink 
but they're far from alone now. They're studying other ones. It was a paper published in the journal Royal Society Open Science. I'm going to say I bet the Royal Society Open Science does not have the funny pages in it, but <laughs> this month they studied uh, li- are they studied lions, polar bears, scaly-tailed possums, oh, and some other ones, and they also fluoresce. <clears throat> and so does every mammal species this group of scientists could get their hands on. They studied 125 species, and they all tested to some degree of fluorescence. And it's, you know, it's what would be the utility for an animal to glow a little bit? Um, I think of the southern marsupial mole, which was one of them tested. They're blind and spend their life entirely underground. Why would it do them any good to fluoresce? I don't know, but it was an interesting study. And thank you, Roger. Appreciate it. Micah said, I believe I just saw a golden eagle soaring overhead. It appeared to have a pattern on its undercarriage. It looks similar to this one, to one he found online. Well, I hope it was, Mike, and it certainly could be. Uh, Chad Hines, Hey, really neat Spidey Sense article in the Free Press, I believe it was on Sunday, about a fellow who is taken with spiders, and that would be Chad Hines, who uh, teaches at Bethany. Chad does a a part of the Hawk Watch. I think he runs it, but he probably wouldn't want me to say he runs it. Uh, Chad says, turkey vultures and broadwing hawks are gone. We had a couple ospreys. They should be wrapping up now. Red tails and eagles require colder weather and snow cover up north, and that is what we're waiting for now. Rough-legged hawks are now being seen in the state, and golden eagles are passing through Duluth. There you go, Micah. So those two species should be on their way to us as well. Uh, Ken Schmidt of La Center sent me a photo of a blue-spotted sandpiper that he, or sandpiper, it's not a sandpiper, uh, salamander. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, when I do read my, when I do can read my writing, it's wrong. Uh, it's a blue-spotted salamander. A blue-spotted sandpiper, that would be really neat, because that would be a new new uh, species. Uh, Carol Hagel-Lant. Lang of Albert Lee sent me some photos of a Eurasian tree sparrow. They are a little bit smaller than house sparrows, have uh, different markings, and they hang around with house sparrows. So I would expect that she'll probably have it for a while. I've had them in my yard here. Uh, Jim Myers. Jim asked a great... Well, he's here... Jim said an hour before sunset, I walk around Spring Lake in Mankato, and the shoreline is covered in cattails all the way around. And in the spring, the red-winged blackbirds fill the air with a calling and claiming territory. In the last few weeks, I've noticed they're flying in and out of the cattails, landing and calling loudly as though it is spring. They keep up this racket, I mean music, until it's dark. Why would they be making so much noise in the fall? There's no need to claim territory now. Uh, I had a similar experience. I was down by State Line Lake. Jim would be uh, near Emmons, Minnesota, would be the closest town. 
and a synchronized wave of birds produced a significant sound as they made a seasonal shift. And it was roosting time in the fall, and it was all noise and black feathers when the clamorous cloud landed on branches clinging to the few remaining leaves. The blackbirds creating silhouettes against the darkening sky. And they weren't in the tree long before they dropped like grains of sand in an hourglass before heading back up into the tree as if the hourglass had been flipped. Perhaps it involved a seeding rearrangement of the red-winged blackbirds and common grackles that made up this flock. And a flock in flight is an amazing thing to see. Scientists have figured that each bird tracks and responds to a finite number of its closest neighbors, seven in the case of starling flock studies. And the bird maintains its distance from each, preventing the flock from turning into a horde of bumper cars. And a flock offers strength in numbers by fostering cooperation. It provides eyes to watch for predators and search for food. There are many discordant voices to call out warning. But Jim, man, that's an excellent question, and I can only suppose an answer. It might have been a political debate, a planning and zoning meeting, or a competition for prime roosting places that led to loud bickering. It might have been a report on food availability and procurement. I wouldn't think it'd be to confuse or frighten predators then, but maybe it was. It was certainly communication of some sorts, as birds excel at communication. And it might have involved the establishment of a pecking order. That's a constant reordering, so that certainly could have been. But I think I think roosting males, they don't want to be crowded, and they aim to maintain a roosting territory by protracting by protesting any intrusion. So you got the one uh, red-winged blackbird in in Jim's case there, what he's looking at. One of them, excuse me, one of them is saying, hey, 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 back off, pal. This is mine right here. So I think that's where a lot of the noise comes from because I noticed it in when we had chickens, they would do kind of the same thing. But no matter what its purpose this behavior from a long ribbon of blackbirds twisting their way across the landscape is a harbinger of changing season. Uh, Marconi, the godfather of radio technology, was convinced that no, no sound ever dies. It, he said it, decay, it would decay beyond the point our ears could detect it, but he believed it was forever and recoverable with the right device. And that device might be the memory the birds give us when we hear it. It's an amazing sound to hear that many birds all trying to talk at once, just as everybody does in a debate. (laughs) So, again, it could be a debate. But uh, thanks for that question, Jim. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Listener said, oh, why is a young sandhill crane called a colt? You know, new cranes are precocious, and they're able to run on gangly legs within 24 hours of hatching. So I'm sure someone long ago observed cranes running and thought they galloped like horses, which led the young ones to be called colts. 
The male is called a roan, R-O-A-N, like a roan horse, and the female a mare. A group of cranes is called a flock, sedge, siege, team, or herd. I like team because if we're going to go with the the horse thing, a team of horses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sedge, of course, is a grassy or marshy habitat that cranes frequent. Cranes are famous for their dancing, so I think dance would make an excellent collective noun. Uh, or just Some birds are getting so many collective nouns, it's impossible to keep up with them. Uh, a different listener uh, said, uh, thanks for your show. Well, thank you for listening. Why were there so few fireflies this year? Oh. And I... I realize that fireflies, everything is local. So you might have, uh, oh, you just say, man, I never saw so many fireflies in my life that was in my yard. And the next guy will say, I didn't have any fireflies. I did not have a great number of fireflies in my yard. I certainly had some, enough to mystify and amaze me. But they have a lot of things going against them. Habitat loss, overuse of pesticides, light pollution, But their larvae feed on snails, slugs, and millipedes, things that thrive in wet environments. So because of that, uh, the drought, the food would be harder to find in a drought, I would think. And with less food, there might have been less fireflies. So I think that might have been a major thing. I know they love to eat millipedes. Do all birds migrate in flocks? Uh, No. Many birds do. We can think of a lot of them. Uh, many birds migrate in flocks. We were just talking. I was just talking about blackbirds. So of course they do. Common nighthawks, American robins, swallows, ducks, and geese. There's some things that come galloping to my mind. But some species migrate alone, and I think the hummingbird is probably a prime example. So they uh, they go. Uh, they go their own way. Wouldn't you have a better chance of, of making it someplace safely if you went in numbers? I mean, you'd figure you'd have all those others around you, or, or doesn't that really matter for birds? I would certainly think it would be. And if I was a hummingbird flying for the first time south, I'd certainly want company. But all of us or any of us that feed hummingbirds, you can see how well they get along. They just uh, fight over everything. They can't, uh, you know, we have had hummingbirds that go into torpor. It looks like they've died on a hummingbird feeder, and I think part of the reason is they just don't want to leave that feeder. They want to keep all the other birds away from it. Mm. So they're willing to suffer through this cold weather and hang upside down by their feet from a, a feeder in order to keep birds away. So they... Maybe it's a good thing they don't migrate together. It, just, it would be one battle all the way, because I'm sure they still fight over food, because they're looking for flowers. They're looking for nectar. And when they find it, other hummingbirds would find it. So I'm sure there's still battles all the way. Although I see some of those things, uh, videos from down south, Texas and, and Costa Rica and places, they seem to get along pretty good at some of those feeders. So they aren't quite as territorial, maybe, as our ruby-throated are here. They just, uh, they're fighters. They, they're like little banty roosters, and they want to fight about everything. <clears throat> do, uh, oh boy, do bats open their mouths 
to echolocate. Uh, yeah, they do. Uh, you know, open their mouths, improve sensory localization. So a real short answer to that would be yes, yes, they do. And sometimes it looks like bats are, uh, you know, their mouth is open a lot of times anyway. So they're finding things to eat. So they got their mouth open, eating stuff, and it just helps them to, to realize where uh, maybe that post is. So they don't fly into a post. So they're they're amazing creatures, little bats. How they can fly around, and I can see why everybody would want to go as a bat this Halloween. <laughs> I could just say that's just I I can't imagine anybody now after Miss Lona gave us that information why anybody would want to go as anything else. Uh, just got a text. Somebody said there's a seeing how uh, purple finches on my feeders and uh, again an odd thing I've got two female purple finches on my window feeder right next to me here and the question was do house finches and purple finches interbreed I you know I think if you could go online you'd probably see things and yeah here's some photos but I checked with the birds of North America. I'm a big believer in the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and they mentioned one documented case of a purple house finch hybrid in the wild, and that was in 1996. House finches are the ones we have here all year long. Uh, House finches, particularly the males, can vary in plumage due to differences in diet. So they look like they might be a hybrid to our eyes a lot because we say, boy, that one doesn't look like any of the other ones. But it still could be a house fence that's just uh, been eating better or worse than the other ones, Uh, certainly something different. And that might be the reason why there are reports of uh, hybrids that uh, might or might not be. I... uh, Listener said, congratulations on the pledge. So the pledge went really well. It went really well. We exceeded it thanks to listeners, so appreciate that. Yeah, and I hope this, I'm assuming this person was a pledge uh, donor, and uh, why else would you mention it? Otherwise you'd kind of shy away and say, (laughs) talk about that. Right. And they asked, uh, what birds can fly the longest without rest? It's a bar-tail godwit, and I believe it's, I know it's a female that holds the non-stop distance record. Now, it's a young female. Uh, This would be for migratory birds. She flew, oh boy, just, you want to hold your breath just reading this, 8,435 miles. She flew from Alaska to Australia. Well, they must have stopped for lunch or something. No, Are you she serious? Was on, she, she was on a deadline. You oh don't stop gosh. when you're on a deadline. You just keep moving. Wow. It took her 11 days, Oof. and there was no rest and Oof. no food. And how do they know that? They yeah. were. She was tracked by a satellite tag. Oh, my gosh. So it, it's just... Uh, it's just amazing. We uh, talk about, you know, every day. Well, every weekend we watch athletes play, and we think, oh, my gosh, what wonderful athletes they are out there, do all these amazing things. And then uh, we read and hear about 
a barred-tailed godwit flying wow. 8,435 miles. And I'm sure it wasn't exactly 435. It was probably 435.4 or something. Cause, <laughs> um, she can't do it like we do at the... Uh, when we're pumping gas. I always like to, you know, if it's all fours, I, I like that when it's $44.44. For for no reason, I just like that. And I wish I could just click it and it would go right to that number and then stop, but I haven't. I, I don't have that ability. I'm always like one or two cents off. Uh, and I, I had a pigeon in my yard this morning. Pigeons, <clears throat> they have a superpower. They can hear sounds so low they can detect distant earthquakes, storms, oh. volcanoes, and other natural calamities. I want to say it's like as low as 500 hertz. Wow. And it's a, it, they're just incredible. Birds... Oh, birds amaze me every day. I learn something new about birds, thanks to all the wonderful listeners who provide all this uh, fodder for me to do so. I remember staying in a camper in Mission, Texas with my bride, and where a common sound was kiskadee, kiskadee. This was the great kiskadee, which named itself. It's a feisty striking colored flycatcher it and it doesn't call its name it doesn't sing its name it shouts its name it just lets fly and again it's named for that loud kiskadee call and it aggressively protects its nesting territory and one of its most feared predators is the coral snake and the kiskadee will stay away from anything with the same color pattern as the color snake. There's several harmless snakes are similarly marked, but never with a red and yellow touching. And coral snakes are found in the southeastern half of Texas in woodlands, canyons, and coastal plains. And the rhyme of caution is red touches black, venom lack, red touches yellow, kill a fellow. And it will also kill a kiskadee, apparently, because these lovely birds, uh, they just, they kiskadee, but they keep an eye out for those snakes and apparently everything else while they're doing that. And it was an alarm clock every morning hearing kiskadee instead of a buzzing alarm. And I, I enjoyed the kiskadee. It made a wonderful alarm clock. See? So, again... Birds are amazing. I got a, a thing, uh, note from Jennifer, and you weren't here last week. We, we pre-recorded, so I'm, she's asking again. She says, hello, ma'am. Please ask the bird guy some questions for my five-year-old Lily. We saw a woodpecker yesterday, and Lily would like to know how they eat, and she would also like to know what a blue jay sounds like. Thank you, Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks, Lily. You always have wonderful questions. A uh, woodpecker varies a little bit on the species because the redheaded, when we are they're here, they fly catch a bit, so they will catch flying insects. Uh, not uh, oh, the downy and the hairy and the red-bellied and the pileated that we have here all year long are not so likely to do that. We do get the yellow the sap suckers come in and they will punch little holes in a maple tree or something and then eat the sap as far as the downies and the harries the 
Pileated's a big eater of ants, so they will hammer these huge holes in dying trees to eat carpenter ants and various things like that. I see little downy woodpeckers in the wintertime pecking at goldenrod galls to find the larvae of a fly in there. Harries and downies. Harries and red bellies more than the downies, just because they're bigger, will hammer in trees and find whatever they can eat in there. Uh, they're looking for insects, spiders, larvae. They also come to our feeders to eat uh, our sunflower seeds. We get uh, flickers that will fly down on the ground and feed on the ground, which is different than there are other woodpeckers here. And what they're down there looking for, again, are ants. They love eating ants. So uh, our woodpeckers will eat a lot of different things. They like different things, but they will certainly come to our feeders for uh, suet and sunflower seeds. So it's a blue jay, lily, they call their name. They call jay, 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 or thief, 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 and they're sentinels of the woods. When I go for a walk in the woods, usually the jays let everybody know this big doofus is coming through the woods. <laughs> so just keep an eye on him. He seems to be harmless, but you never know about humans. They will also make, uh, they sound like old rusty pump handles. It goes queedle, queedle when you're pumping water. And they can make a lot of different sounds. I see them. And again, I got a, wood, or a blue jay on my feeder now. So whatever I talk about comes to the feeder. I'm going to ask for a really rare bird. I mentioned that. Maybe that'll come. But they will make, I don't, they're endearing sounds. A pair will come in there and they make these sweet little sounds. So they have a, a lot of different voices that they give. And uh, most of them have a purpose, Lily, just like ours. So that's great. Great questions. I want to thank everybody for sitting on the front porch with us. Uh, you know, a single snowflake fell on October 28th, and I suspected it was an advanced scout, and I was <laughs> right, because it brought all its friends. In the house, my wife was armed with nothing but a table fork, and she was trying to land a pickle bigger than the jar it swam in. Oh, dill pickles rock. The big ones, that just snap when you bite into them. So does pickled okra. But pickled beets taste like pickled beetles. My wife finds pickle fishing a demanding sport. <laughs> it's challenging but rewarding. I tackle the jarred asparagus as it pickles my fancy. Later, I taught classes on writing and birding. I did some of it with a box elder bug on my head. Uh, I know, you know, and you can have a box elder bug on your head a long time without people mentioning it. They'll just giggle and stuff. I didn't put it there. There were days this fall when it was difficult to do anything without having a box elder bug on my head. But none of the college classrooms had a pencil sharpener. They should. I think every schoolroom should, including the bathrooms at a college. The pencil sharpener should be manual, not electric, because cranking a sharpener is an excellent exercise, and as walking does, it fosters creativity. It sharpens the imagination. Do something wild today, folks. Look at a bird. Remember, heartless, while we're driving past. Thank you, Karen, as always, for your wonderful company. Well, I thank appreciate you. it. I appreciate you too, Al. We'll chat with you next week, okay? 
Alrighty, bye-bye. Thanks, bye-bye. Always great to talk with our good friend Al Bat. He is awesome, and uh, we are so blessed to have him as part of our our programming for the last nearly 40 years. It is 1030.